I'm Samaita Graver, and I want to welcome you to Truth, Salt, and Spice, the podcast. My hope is that the stories my guests share inspire you to walk in truth, be salt to your corner of the world, and to use the unique gifts that God intentionally gave you to add spice to everything you do. During this episode, uh, we came in with the intention of discussing Beth Moore's uh, letter to the brothers um, in the church global. And while we did do that for a while, Magdalena and I had a lot of fun talking about different topics from Russian literature to Jesus um, and the uh, adulterous woman to a translation of the Bible and how sometimes it just loses its meaning. And... Um, just something as simple as why people think that you're supposed to read certain books at the beach. It was so much fun, and I hope that you enjoy it, enjoy it as much as I did. <gasps> welcome, welcome! Hello, hello, how are you? Good, good, I'm so excited. We can actually do this, like, across the ocean. Right? <laughs> Your podcast goes like almost, almost international, almost, (laughs) almost international. Oh my goodness. That's really funny. Can you hear me? Okay. I can. And I can hear you. Okay. Well, I feel the need to, um, uh, uh, sort of apologize ahead of time to my listeners. Generally, I, (laughs) sometimes I have technical difficulties this time I'm in Puerto Rico. And so there's, uh, still a lot of, um, uh, rebuilding and reconstruction going on and uh, where I am staying they are rebuilding a um, it's not very close but it seems to echo up the street they're rebuilding a um, basketball court and the whole echoes. <laughs> yes and so they're rebuilding and it's made out of it looks like steel but they're taking it all apart because all the um, the roof uh, was uh, it seemed it was corrugated tin but the structure itself was made out of steel. So they're actually mm. taking it all apart because it's leaning the whole, like, can you imagine like, oh, steel? Goodness. The whole thing is just leaning sideways. That's how strong the winds were. So, wow. Um, anyway, I guess even though it's a um, holiday, um, they're taking it down. So there's some work being done. Uh, so if you hear noises in the background, I apologize. But hopefully the content today will just blow your mind and that will be inconsequential. <laughs> Oh, goodness. No, no pressure, right? <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> or the content won't be, and you'll laugh, and it'll be inconsequential anyway. Whichever. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. <laughs> we'll go in either way. Dear friend, um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? You can say whatever you want people to know about you, and okay. uh, we'll get moving. Okay. Um, I'm Magdalena Altno. Um, I am a... I don't know. What am I? That's the problem. What am I? That's part of, I guess I feel like you're I'm a unicorn. Of, I, I, that's part of this conversation. I think, I think there's a lot of like identity stuff and ultimately in this conversation we'll have today, but um, I am, I, let's just say I am a girl living in Texas, but I am from all kinds of places with all kinds of background. Um, I was born in Poland and raised in Canada and um, and married a Texan. So here I am. And I um, am a homeschool mom who is also a writer and a photographer on the side. So, yeah, there's a lot going on there. Woohoo! And I like all of it. All of it. I like your pictures, your writing. You know, every time you speak, I'm kind of swoon. Oh, 
because we like words. Although you use them generally, I know them. I don't always use them. Oh, you're funny. Well, we well, try, right? Everybody's trying their yes, best. Yes, <laughs> we do. We, we try. We try. I'm reading the Scarlet Letter. And as I'm reading, there's certain words. And I'm like, man, I haven't heard this since I was living in Puerto Rico as a kid. Right. Um, because it's not regular English uh, that people use every day. And so I feel like, oh, I know exactly what this means. Like, I don't even have to look it up. <laughs> That's probably pretty, like, amazing. I don't know that other people reading it right now would feel the same way. They'd be like, no, get me the dictionary. No, I do. There have been a couple. Oh, I wish I had it. I actually brought it with me because I thought I would read, but I don't know. Who comes to Puerto Rico and reads? Not me, I guess. I had intentions of. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's like beach reading. I mean, I guess I'm assuming you're on the beach, but it like, it just, yes. Scarlet Letter doesn't feel like, I know, I'll bring that to the beach. <laughs> well, I don't know. A book is a book to me. I'll read whatever, where, whenever. I mean, look, but... I say that, but I mean, I have my I have a degree in comparative literature so I mean obviously I would have been the person being like let's read Jane Eyre at the beach but not <laughs> not typical I think so what is but, okay so there's actually like typical book reading like I mean beach reading well I feel like if you if you go through most um I don't know I, I just remember growing up and always seeing in all the women's magazines right like you know 10 books for your you know summer beach reads and they were all like romance novels and like chiclet and like just not oh. I mean wow can you say stereotypical or I what I mean yes and so yeah, I guess when I think of like people acceptable books to bring to the beach it never felt like I could whip out my classics because it felt like so yeah I was so I would be, be judged like, for being the wacko yeah, bringing I'd, I'd be drowned in the ocean because I brought great expectations right or <laughs> you know oh that was such a great book case, I loved like, it Dostoevsky or you know Pasternak and so yeah it doesn't <laughs> wow okay well I didn't know that was a thing you know what I guess because I just don't care what people <laughs> You're think not I just right? do what I I had no idea that there were like beach reading like if you read it just has letters so you can read whatever <laughs> isn't that beach reading you grab well, a magazine I think, I beach that reading. It, you're right I think it's a reflection <laughs> of like the way that women's, you know, literature for women has been sort of put in a specific box. Um, and not everybody, obviously. I mean, yeah, that's a, you know, I don't want to make that a sweeping statement, but yeah. there's definitely a genre, you know, if you're not considered a certain type of writer, then you're probably what's considered a chiclet writer. And that's, you know, that's an interesting genre. Okay. To be well, listen, I don't, I don't want to sound judgmental myself, but I, I don't like being put in a box. And when I hear stuff like that, it just makes me baddie yeah no I hear you so, <laughs> listen if people have their chick list beach whatever I don't even know what it's called <laughs> then that's just amen to them whatever no and here's my thing you I do you like, people <laughs> I feel like there is a place for all of it but when you just say like this is just for women it's like this is just for ladies to read on the beach it's you know but it's all good I mean I, we all need an yeah. escape every now and then so oh I thought that was alcohol <laughs> I mean, maybe for some people. Like, I think they go hand in hand for some people oh. on the beach, I think, right? I don't know. Oh, my gosh. Okay, please, anybody out there that's anti-alcohol, don't, don't send, me hip, right. send me hate mail because I'm not reading it. Anyway. You're so funny. You're so funny. Well, we're yes. going to go right on into an interesting topic. Um, 
Well, you had said you studied something women in college. Can you say a little bit about that before we dig into what we're going to be talking about? Because I don't remember what you said. Oh, yeah. Well, I so I have a combined honors degree in comparative literature and history. And um, just with the way that things worked out, most of my history courses ended up being in um, American women's uh, social movements. And so um, I just spent a lot of time studying, I mean, I guess sort of early feminism and just, you know, the way that women have um, fought for change um, in this country, Mm -hmm. um, you know, over the court, you know, since pre-vote. So, you know, uh, and probably going back to like civil war, but women in social movements is a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting thing. And I think for me personally, I'm the kind of, um, I was the kind of history student that I was less um, interested in uh, battles and strategy that like, you know, military strategy and more interested in where did these people come from and why are they reacting to the things that they, the way that they are. And, um, and so for me, women's social movements was definitely, you know, a fascinating thing. And obviously as a woman, um, as a young woman growing up, I mean, I grew up in Canada, but it's, you know, I feel like that's, um, it's a Western, you know, a a Western shift of the way that women, um, their roles in society. So, you know, it's, it's always been a topic that's fascinated me. Um, so yeah, that was my my background. I imagine to being from Poland, um, I don't know if you're okay. I, I, I say this in each podcast. If I ask a question you're not okay with answering or feel like it's none of your business, you can say that and, and we're good. So did, your, did you guys leave the country because of political or upheaval or you just moved to Canada because you wanted to different kind of uh, no, lifestyle? My, so my, our story is, is that my parents escaped okay. the, the communist regime at the time um, that was in Poland. Um, so I imagine then that has some, that's why I asked. I was wondering if that had some influence to even how, what it's, how you think, were shaped as a person and how you viewed things. Right. And I would say in my family, the, there's an element that's maybe political, but probably more, it's just when you're in it, when you are, um, have some of the experiences that I had in, in my life and my, you know, um, my Essentially, my family were refugees for a little bit in Austria. And then, you know, growing up as an immigrant in Canada, um, when you grow up outside of what sort of are like the normal structures of family life, does that make sense? Like my Mm -hmm. family was sort of our support system. And so uh, roles of men and women in my own home, I feel like weren't always reflective of um, maybe what other people had standards for. Like my mom does a lot of things at home, but I never saw my parents as like unequal because I think when you're an immigrant, everybody just does what you have to do, right? Like, yes, mm-hmm. everybody pulls their weight. Everybody, there's no, there's no, you do this and I do that. It's like, we do it together. And my, the model I've had growing up from my parents has always been their team. I mean, my parents are an amazing team. Like they get they couldn't do stuff without both of them chipping in um and i don't even think that like now they're not in a position like they were you know 30 some years ago but they um but they still like i don't think they know how to work without you know team you know it's like they wouldn't even cross their mind to not you know work as a team and so 
you know, even though there might be like a division of labor and things, I just have always seen my parents sort of pick up whatever needs to be picked up whenever, regardless of like, you're a man, I'm a woman. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it absolutely so I does. Think, I, I think all of that has absolutely shaped the way that I sort of navigate these waters for myself. Um, and when I was and when I was in university, um, because my my real hope was to have studied um, Russian and Eastern European literature and culture. And so I found myself really digging. And so actually the communist element was interesting for me because at the same time that I was, you know, simultaneously I'm learning about, you know, women's social movements in North America. But on the flip side, I'm asking myself the question, well, hold on. What does that look like for women under communism where essentially the, you know, I mean, I say it because I say it, it's a relative because I, in an ideal communist socialist, right, it's like everybody's equal. So there is no difference. So how does gender impact those women? And so I found myself asking a lot of questions on, you know, it, both of those studies brought a lot of um, brought a lot of those questions to me because. You know, I think it does impact it when your society sort of views you differently, either as equal or not, or, you know, what variation of that. So, you know, it's a very broad, it's a very broad topic, but no doubt your experiences shape that, you know, and they shape your, your questions and the way that you navigate those waters. So, yeah, I find it interesting because I never thought about it that way, that if you're in a society in which everybody's equal, you're going to do whatever work you do, you get paid the same, or I guess, basically right I mean (laughs) you know so in the like ideal version of these things right yes exactly in the utopian way that's how it would work yet I don't get a feeling that that is the way it is in communist countries and I've never heard of anybody saying yeah they may be poor but women are empowered (laughs) have you well no well so it's a so the it's a funny thing because because the theology or the ideology the mm-hmm. ideology suggests the equality there's it's almost always met with well what are you talking about obviously that couldn't be true we're all equal right so and a lot of times in a system like that um even if it's not being reflected in reality uh the ideology is defended above the reality does that make sense mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah that's why we are at war and don't get along and kill each other or whatever because you know things but it's almost as though they would defend like they would argue the point with you that whatever your perception or whatever you're like you are perceiving reality this way but obviously that could not be true because ideologically this is what we believe and that was some of what i found when and that's when you say the proof is in the pudding honey true but (laughs) That doesn't, you know, I mean, well, yes, look, yes. In a, in a system, in mm-hmm. a system like, you know, let's say Eastern Europe post World War II, when you do have um, so much, there was a lot of oppression, obviously, for a long time and a lot of like occupation. And so you're not, when you live in a system with like secret police, I mean, are you going to defend your reality versus ideology? Like, yeah, sure, the proof is in the pudding, but who's going to be brave enough to say it out loud? You know what I mean? So I think, and that's why we have this sort of, you know, how the 
you know, the fall of communism in, in Eastern Europe and in Russia is like, you know, because people were willing to say, yeah, I'm going to take that risk anyways, because this isn't working. You know, this oh, you know, I, I just started reading A Gentleman in Moscow. And I, I can't read two books at a time. So since I started the Scarlet Letter, I went ahead and I'm like, I'm going to finish this first because it's a short book. <laughs> right. Um, but I'm totally intrigued by the whole thing because this guy, you know, I don't want to give the book away, but now he's like condemned or, or um, is imprisoned to this hotel, I guess, is where he's going to have to live. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, is he going to get out? And right. All because he wrote a poem that seemed to mark like after this poem came out, people started like a revolution. So they're kind of like blaming him that he instigated some revolution or something. Which like, is, is fascinating. That is precisely. I mean, that is precisely how that happened. I mean, there's many, many authors who they, you know, you either towed the party line or you were out and being out, you know, and, and in the Soviet Union specifically, you know, you were funded by the state. So, so artists were supported, but funded by the state. So now if you're, I mean, are you going to write against the state when they're paying your bills? Do you know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I mean, obviously done, you know, strategically, but what would end up happening is that there's a sort of saying in, in, um, you know, Soviet literature is this idea of, you know, writing for the drawer. Many, many authors wrote for what they called the drawer, which was you can express yourself, but that thing is going into hiding and no one, sh- it should never see the light of day, right? Mm. And there's a lot of literature that came out of that. I mean, and there's even like, so one of my favorite books is um, Dr. Zhivago mm. by Boris Pasternak. And, you know, Pasternak absolutely like could not even leave the country when he won the Nobel um, prize for for literature because you know you have to sort of make a decision like to accept the honor or not because to accept it would have meant you know that you are now like because they already felt that a lot of, he really got into a lot of trouble um, I have not read the book so I, I don't have any context I've heard well, of it the con- let, let me I'll put it this way that uh-huh. I would say that the context of that book very much focuses on a lot of questions of the individual, right? And uh-huh. individualism and how you feel, uh, there was not really a lot of room for that at that time in the uh-huh. Soviet Union. And so, you know, but to to leave the country to accept the Nobel Prize for something that wasn't already seen as uh, supportive of the ideology, you know, would have been a problem. So there's, and there, that's happened to a lot of authors. So absolutely, um, that's why you'll see so much um, sort of almost fantasy writing um, and uh, like I, like writing that you're like, what is happening? If you've ever seen, you know, books like uh, The Master of Margarita, like Bulgakov did these like crazy, almost sci-fi, but not stories um, that they're always, they're always like, there's a subtext and maybe you'll figure out the subtext and maybe you won't, but it won't be overt. Does that make sense? Mm. Um, I know for Polish people, Polish people um, use humor. They use comedy and humor. There's many Polish films that use that to sort of be like, well, we're in it. So I guess if we're just, you know, if we use humor and satire to tell, you know, that's sort of the way that they would deal with, you know, the system that they had on their hands. So, um, but I mean, it's, it's not like writers and artists have always sort of been seen as this, you know, you have the power to sort of move the culture. And so don't move it in the wrong direction. I mean, in certain, 
yeah, certain yeah. regimes. Obviously, that's why I think as you know, if as writers and artists, people, you know, should I think we need to recognize the the potential role that can we can absolutely play. Well, in, if you even change, think of um, what is his name, uh, Hitler, and you know what? I can't say the other guy's name right for the life of me. I always say Stalin. I think that's wrong. Is it no, it's Stalin? Stalin. Oh, okay. Yeah, I Stalin. say Stalin then sometimes. Okay. That's why. <laughs> Stalin. What did they do? They went and took the power away from people like the writers and the artists because they knew the influence that they had within and took everything yeah, away from them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in Poland, they're sort of known as the the um, intelligentsia, right? It's the... the sort oh, of the- well, that's kind of, that's Latin. Right. Well, so it's like yeah. The, <laughs> it's, it's like the, um, you know, the academics, the people uh-huh. who are going to like, which, you know, my own university experience that to me, that was the, my favorite part was being able to sit and just have a dialogue, you know, discourse and, and, and really just sort of hashing out questions and ideas. But I mean, you can't really be hashing out questions and ideas because if they can potentially you know, kill you. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to do much basic level. Yeah. Good dead. (laughs) You have to be careful. Right. Right. That, that must be so hard. I can't even imagine because I'm one that opens my mouth and the chips fall where they fall. Right. I'd be dead. I would have been dead. Although I don't know. My self-preservation is kind of high. So maybe I would have become really (laughs) stealth, but I don't know. Well, and I think what control. Oof, yeah, go ahead. I think what the amazing thing is, is that what you end up seeing in those kinds of regimes. And I mean, it's not just, you know, I mean, there's plenty of regimes like that, whether, you know, they've been in lots of other countries have had that. But people find a way to try to sort of um, give hope or shed light on things. Um, even if it means that they'll have to find like a covert way to do it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I think like that's been, that's like a trend. You could probably find that in every culture and every country where that has been through tough times. I just think we admittedly in North America are very used to being able to say like, you know, whatever we want without worrying about the repercussions. And that is definitely a freedom we should be extremely grateful for, you know, yes. extremely grateful for because to be able to say things openly is um, without being, you know, because I think that's it's a gift. It, it is. No, it's absolutely. A yeah. Gift. I think like when you think that there were people in those regimes who were, would say something, but would, they wouldn't even think they were saying something against it, but it could, you know, one small word or whatever could be construed as look at, you're trying to, you know, start something a bad yeah. light or mm. yeah. So, I mean, it didn't happen a lot. So, you know, I, I don't think that that's something to be taken for granted at all. We should be very, very grateful that we have that, um, that have that, you know, privilege in yeah. the country. Well, I want to go ahead and um, dig in. Beth Moore is a uh, pretty famous uh, women's ministry leader. And she wrote a letter recently. And um, I wanted, I'm going to actually take, I don't know how long, the letter's a little long, but I want to read it just in case our listeners have not. And then I want us to discuss it, especially in the light of women in social movements, because um, if you haven't read the letter, you'll get the context, but it is, there is a social movement right now. It's that Me Too movement. And it's this, you know, women have value. They're not, 
your, your sexual pleasure, you know, visual yes. toys or whatever, like, you know, we're, we're humans and to be respected. And now we're talking about the Christian circle. So this is yes. just even more. Mm, well, touchy. which has its very own interesting <laughs> dynamic, <laughs> yes. for sure. And so, it, in in the whole guise, I think of you know the role that women are purportedly to play according to scripture, depending on who reads it, right? Um, or some scriptures seem to be pretty black and white. Let's just not even try to pretend that some things are like, well, well, it's like. Okay, you know, um, women have been definitely treated um, as second class citizens and have been degraded and humiliated. Um, And so, which speaks to just human flaws for sure. Um, But in a culture and in a religion that uh, waxes philosophical on how moral we are, (laughs) <laughs> kind of stings, you know, and it kind of shows right. Christians in a really bad light when you have um, male leaders uh, walking around very chauvinistic. And um, uh, I don't know what to say that's respectful. So I'm going to stop okay. <laughs> talking because <laughs> I, I do I do want to go into this in a very respectful and what did you say? Balanced way. We're going to be <laughs> unicorns today. You're so funny. <laughs> Balance is good as a yes. historian, as a, as someone who studied history and mm-hmm. I feel like continues to, I think that, you know, every social movement you will see, it's always swinging from one extreme to the other. And my entire like university career, I was like, why can't we just find someplace right in the middle where we could sort of listen to each other? So I don't, yeah, that's, yeah, that's going to so, kill me, but <laughs> yes. And I agree. I agree. Um, even as passionate as I come off, because I am, once, once I get my, okay, let's talk, let, let's, let's come, you know, let's sit right. here together, let's pretend, or let's, you know, because if we're not in person, let's just sit and talk, and we can still yeah. leave, and then go and masticate on what each other said, and then see where there's a middle, if there is one, because sometimes there are extremes that have, there, there's just no middle to them, but, <laughs> but, you know, I think, well, look, I think we I can mean, do a better have... job. Obviously, there are some things that I feel like there are black, there are some pretty black and white things, you know, I mean, I feel like, you know, murdering people, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I fall on the line, like, let's not do that, right? I think those are, (laughs) you know, I am not for that. There's no, I don't find a middle. There's not a lot. Yeah. Okay, so here goes a letter. I'm going to read it. This is Beth Moore. And it's uh, says it's uh, title is a letter to my brothers. Dear brothers in Christ. A few years ago, I told my friend, Ed Stetzer, that whenever he hears the news that I am on my way, on my deathbed, sorry, he's to elbow his way through my family members to interview me about what it's been like to be a female leader in the conservative evangelical world. He responded, why can't you do it before then? Because you know good and well that what will happen, I answered, I'll get fried like a chicken. This woman, I can yeah, see okay. her. <laughs> She's very expressive. She doesn't speak like I am. <laughs> so <laughs> I continue. After recent events following on the heels of a harrowing 18 months, I've decided fried chicken doesn't sound so bad. I have been a professing evangelical for decades and at least in my sliver of the world, a conservative one. I was a cradle roll Southern Baptist by denomination with an interdenominational ministry. 
I walked the aisle to receive Christ as my Savior at nine, nine years old in an SBC church. I'm going to say Southern Baptist Conference yes. Church. Con- I think, okay. Yeah. I didn't look that up. Um, and exactly nine years later, walked the aisle in another SBC church to surrender to a vocational calling. Being a woman called to leadership within a simultaneously beyond those and simultaneously beyond those walls was complicated, to say the least. But I worked within the system. I should have had you read this letter. (laughs) I do. I'm reading along with you. I have it in front of me. (laughs) Go ahead. Keep reading. Okay, that's fine. After all, go ahead. (laughs) After all, I had no personal aspirations to preach, nor was it my aim to teach men. If men showed up in my class, I did not throw them out. I taught. But my unwavering passion was to teach and to serve women. I lack adequate words for my gratitude to God for the pastors and male staff in my local churches for six decades who have shown me love, support, grace, respect, opportunity, and often outright favor. They, alongside key leaders at Lifeway and numerous brothers elsewhere, have no place in the larger picture I'm about to paint for you. They have brought me joy and kept me from derailing into cynicism and chronic discouragement amid the more challenging dynamics. As a woman leader in the conservative evangelical world, I learned early to show constant pronounced deference, not just proper respect, which I was glad to show to male leaders and when placed in situations to serve alongside them to do so apologetically. I issued disclaimers ad nauseum. I wore flats instead of heels when I knew I'd be serving alongside a man of shorter stature so I wouldn't be taller than he. I've ridden elevators in hotels packed with fellow leaders who were serving at the same event and not been spoken to, and even more awkwardly, in the same vehicles where I was never acknowledged. I've been in team meetings where I was either ignored or made fun of, the latter of which I was expected to understand was all in good fun. I am a laugher. I can take jokes and make jokes. I know good fun when I'm having it. And I also know when I'm being dismissed and ridiculed. I was the elephant in the room with a skirt on. I've been talked down to by male seminary students and held my tongue when I wanted to say, brother, I was getting up before dawn to pray and to pour over scriptures when you were still in your (laughs) pull-ups. Right. That's It's a great one. (laughs) It is. Some will inevitably argue that the disrespect was not over gender, but over my lack of formal education. But that, too, largely goes back to issues of gender. Where was a woman in my generation and denomination to get seminary training to actually teach the scriptures? I hoped it would be an avenue for me and applied and was accepted to Southwestern Seminary in 1988. After a short time of making the trek across Houston while my kids were in school, of reading the, in, read, of reading the environment and coming to the realization of what my opportunities would and would not be, I took a different route. I turned to doctrine classes and tutors, read stacks of books, and did my best to learn how to use commentaries and other Bible research tools. My road was messy, but it was the only reasonable avenue open to me. Anyone out in the public eye gets pelted with criticism. It's to be expected, especially in our social media culture, and those who can't stand the heat need to get out of the kitchen. What is relevant to this discussion is that several years ago when I got publicly maligned maligned, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, for being a false teacher by a segment of hyper-fundamentalists based on snippets taken out of context and tied together, 
I inquired whether or not they had researched any of my Bible studies to reach those conclusions over my doctrine, especially the studies in recent years. The answer was no. Why? They refused to study what a woman had taught. Meanwhile, no few emails circulated calling pastors to disallow their women to do my heretical studies. Exhausting. God was and is and will always be faithful. He is sovereign and all is grace. He can put us out there and pull us back as he pleases. Ours is to keep our heads down and seek him earnestly and serve him humbly. I have accepted these kinds of challenges for all these years because they were simply part of it and because opposition and difficulties are norms for servants of Christ. I've accepted them because I love Jesus with my whole heart and will serve him to death and serve him to the death. God has worked all the challenges for good as he promised promises us he will. And even amid the frustrations and turmoil, I would not trade lives with a soul on earth. Even criticism, as much as we all hate it, is used by God to bring correction, endurance, and humility, and to curb our deadly addictions to the approval of man. I accepted the peculiarities accompanying female leadership in a conservative Christian world because I chose to believe that whether or not some of the actions and attitudes seem godly to me, they were rooted in deep convictions based on passages from 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. Then early October 2016 surfaced attitudes among some key Christian leaders that smacked of misogyny, objectification, and astonishing disesteem of women, and it spread like wildfire. It was just the beginning. I came face to face with one of the most demoralizing realizations of my adult life. Scripture was not the reason for the colossal disregard and disrespect of women among many of these men. It was only the excuse. Sin was the reason. Ungodliness. This is where I cry foul and not for my own sake. Most of my life is behind me. I do so for the sake of my gender, for the sake of our sisters in Christ, and for the sake of other female leaders who will be faced with similar challenges. I do so for the sake of my brothers because Christ-likeness is at stake, and many of you are in positions to foster Christ-likeness in your sons and in the men under your influence. The dignity with which Christ treated women in the Gospels is fiercely beautiful and is not and was not conditional upon their understanding their place. About a year ago, I had an opportunity to meet a theologian I'd long respected. I'd read virtually every book he'd written. I looked so forward to getting to share a meal with him and talk theology. The instant I met him, he looked me up and down, smiled approvingly and said, you're better looking than... He didn't leave it blank. He filled it in with the name of another woman Bible teacher. These examples may seem fairly benign in the light of recent scandals of sexual abuse and assault coming to light, but the attitudes are growing from the same dangerous malignant root. Many women have experienced horrific abuses from the power structures of our Christian world. Being any part of shaping misogynistic attitudes, whether or not they result in criminal behavior is sinful and harmful and produces terrible fruit. It also paints us continually as weak-willed women and seductresses. I think I can speak for many of us when I say that we are neither interested in reducing or seducing our brothers. The irony is that many of the men who will give consideration to my concerns do not possess a whit of the misogyny coming under the spotlight. For all the times you've spoken up on our behalf and for the compassion you've shown in your response to me too, please know that you have won our love and gratitude and respect. John 
Bisanyo, my pastor for almost 30 years, regularly said these words. I have most often seen that when pe the people of God are presented with the facts, they do the right thing. I was raised in ministry under his optimism and despite many challenges, have not recovered from it yet. For this reason, I write this letter with hope. I'm asking for your increased awareness to some of our skewed attitudes, some of the skewed attitudes many of, our, of your sisters encounter. Many churches quick to teach submission are often slow to point out that women were among the followers of Christ, Luke 8, and the first recorded words out of his resurrected mouth was woman, John 20, 15. And the same woman, that same woman was the first evangelist. Many churches wholly devoted to teaching the household codes are slow to also point out the numerous women with whom the Apostle Paul served and for whom he possessed obvious esteem. We are fully capable of grappling with the tension of with the tension the two spectrums create and we must if we are truly devoted to the whole counsel of god's word finally i'm asking that you would simply have no tolerance for misogyny and dismissiveness towards women in your spheres of influence i'm asking for your deliberate and clearly conveyed influence towards the imitation of christ in his attitude and actions towards women i'm also asking for forgiveness both from my sisters and my brothers my acquiescence and silence made me, made me complicit in perpetuating an atmosphere in which a damaging relational dynamic has flourished. I want to be a good sister to both genders. Every paragraph in this letter is towards that goal. I am grateful for that privilege to be heard. I'm grateful for the privilege to be heard. I long for the day, have asked for the day, when we can sit in roundtable discussions to consider ways we might best serve and glorify Christ as the family of God, deeply committed to the authority of the word of God and the imitation of Christ. I am honored to call many of you friends and deeply thankful to you for your devotion to Christ. I see him so often in many of you. In his great name, Beth. Mm, beautiful. Here's the first thing that comes to my mind. I think there are two, two, different, two different issues here at hand. Mm -hmm. There's just the fact of women roles in church, which depending on which denomination, what you believe, it, 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 that's what it is. Right. And then there's the misogyny and the um, uh, sexual abuse. And when I say that, it, you know, it, it's in any way when you use a woman for your own pleasure and she's not, <laughs> she's not willingly participating. Um, whatever that is, whether it's in, you know, uh, word, action, or, or even in your mind. Um, and, but you put those, both of those things together, and it is dangerous. Absolutely. For sure. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so I really don't even know which route to take here, because there's just so many different little ways we could, rabbit holes we can start digging into. I did go ahead and pull up First Timothy um, 2. And I guess okay. she's referring to here, um, verse 11, where it says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was first, formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and holiness with propriety. <laughs> My first thought was, so if they never give birth, then what? I, I don't know. I well, and that scripture. I, that's not, that's more, <laughs> listen, that's hard for me too because I'm like, well, wait a minute. I will only be saved through Christ. And so 
none of my doing, whether through childbirth or otherwise, is going to get me there. Does that make sense? So yeah, that yeah, this whole scripture is like what? And so, but let's let's go with the reality of it. This is people will take this as well. It's gospel. It's in there, right? Right. And then what? Um, But even if this is what you believe, do you? Do people have to be demeaned? Oh, women. We're talking about women specifically. Demeaned along the way. No, and I think the problem is it's, it's often scriptures like this that end up in, you know, that get sort of plucked out and then we end it there. So, um, and I think what often ends up happening is that it tends to get bounced into our court to shut down anything. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. It's sort of like there's there's a handful of scriptures that tell women about how women should be. And every time we feel you step out of line, we're going to throw that scripture at you to shut down the conversation. Um, which is so interesting to me because the Bible is full of men doing very sinful things. And not doing things necessarily correctly. And so this idea that like it's this correction is reserved, you know, for women to then be like, that's enough out of you back to your corner that's very that's very difficult um and that's very difficult because you know for me one of the first things that stood out in her letter was when she said that um you know i walked down the aisle to receive christ as my savior at nine years old Mm -hmm. and then she says and exactly nine years later walk later walked down um the aisle in another sbc church to surrender to a vocational calling you know Mm -hmm. i think like I think the the fundamental difference of something like the Christian faith is that there is a surrender to Christ. And we're all just sitting here trying to figure out what does my role look like in that? And listen, it's not easy. I mean, if you listen to people talking about the call to like, you know, to like vocational ministry, most men will tell you they, they struggled with that. So how much harder is it for a woman who spent, you know, when you grow up in a culture that's basically said to you, that's kind of not for you. That's not your place. And yet you're like, well, then where is the call coming from? Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> like, then where, then yeah. why do, why are there women who have this burning passion, you know, because they also um, have fallen in love with scripture um, want you know feel a call to to teach what's in there i mean it's just and also to live a christ-like life i mean if we're all called to evangelism then that doesn't mean some of us that means all of us well and this is what i find interesting so let's even say that this is to be taken verbatim because the thing the bible that i've learned i think being bilingual is that words translations sometimes kill text. Oh, listen, I completely agree with you because I also, you're bilingual, I understand right? that yeah. I'm bilingual, so yeah. I absolutely and get that. so, like, when I read in Proverbs, like, it says son, son. Sometimes it is sons, and literally, like, boys, you know, men, right. masculine. Um, but in, in Puerto Rico, in Spanish, if you have um, children and you have two boys and a girl, mm-hmm. when you introduce your children, you say, these are my sons. Gotcha. If I translate it literally. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that Spanish comes from more Eastern, you know, yes. <laughs> influence and all that, 
and and you know being that the middle east is closer along the way you know that i am pretty sure and i've looked it up that you know sons does mean both right and so when i read things i sometimes can switch in my brain to spanish in the context of what it means and it gives the bible a whole different light just with that because when you read sons and in english it just means males a bunch of boys Right. But in my mind, when I read sons, I look for the context of is this all masculine or is this a group of boys and girls? Right. So we've been reading Proverbs. Some things is, you know, obviously they're adulterous. <laughs> so right. we're talking to boys, but they're in there. You know, my sons, that it's very gender neutral. And so if you have all daughters and you say these are my daughters and if you have all boys and you say these are my sons and then it's, you know, sons and then you introduce it you know, individually. Right. But they all get grouped up under sons. And there are many other things like that that is just very specific or they just mean that, you know, a Spanish, it, you know, because the root being Latin is such. And because you said of the intelligence thing, yeah. I, I think those countries over there, Polish, um, Poland, uh, what's the other one? Romania, they mm-hmm. are Latin kind of based or something, because sometimes I've heard words. I'm like, oh, that sounds like Spanish. <laughs> so there, there's well, something think- over there. The romance language has got, you know. And in there I somewhere too like I know for me it's in my own home it's always difficult because sometimes I which I know it's so odd for people because I have zero accent that you know no one would be like oh I think she must be from Eastern Europe yeah. um, you know I don't that's not generally what people think so it's always odd when I'm like oh gosh I can't find the English word because I'm sure people are like what is she talking about yeah but in my you know when you grow up with another language in your home there are some things that I think of my first, my first thought is um, a Polish word, but also ha- there've been many, many times where I've been like, well, the technical word is this, but I hear it in English. And I think that word just doesn't fully encompass the overall feeling of what it was in Polish. Does that make sense? Like, yes, it it's, does. It's because so of Spanish. Lacking. Like in English, it sounds so like, you know, I don't know, like it's blunt, but it's, it evokes so much more when you say it in Polish. And so uh, a literal translation, like a word for word, little literal translation is not always sufficient to express the sort of the bigger picture. Yep. It is. You know how in Greek they have, there's um, um, agape love and Mm -hmm. there's, um, is it filio? Am I saying that right? And then there's another one. Um, yeah, there, I mean, there are many, but anyway, yes, there so, <laughs> you know, we have those in Spanish too. So my daughter's taking, my kids are taking Spanish and they're like, I don't understand this. Like the quiero, that means like, I want, what do you mean? Somebody wants you like when they love you, you know, and all this stuff. And I said, because it's, it's yeah. Translated literally, it, it makes no sense, Right. but it's a degree of love. Like te amo is like that deep passionate, you know, so we have those. And yes. so when in English, everybody uses love for everything, it cheapens it. <laughs> well, you I know, love chocolate. A, listen, I love my husband. <laughs> this is, it's so funny because I, I have, uh, there's a Bible study that I'm in in my church and uh, we sort of do like rotational share. So like one day I might teach the class, another day someone else might be teaching it. But yeah, you know, so for like two years, I've had this conversation with this one lady, she always gets really flustered because she feels like, you know, when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, she's always like, I just don't feel like I love everybody. And I, I, my gut, my gut instinct for her always has been to say, 
this is because we are putting a Western concept of love only. And I think mm. the key is, is that we need to go and say, but what does God say love is? So exactly. Open, open up. Open First up, Corinthians up, 13. First Corinthians, that's <laughs> every time. Listen, and I'm like, every time I say to her, no, 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 let's go back to Corinthians because mm-hmm. look at what God says love is. And it's not this like mushy, lovey, romantic thing. And sometimes love isn't about feelings. You know, yes, it isn't. Like, you know what's I funny? My, I tell, I, I tell people, children, but I'm not like uh-huh. loving that I gotta clean up their vomit. But I do it because I love them. <laughs> you understand? Like there yes. is, there is love involved here, but it's not in that moment. Believe me, there's no like warm fuzzies because I'm cleaning up vomit. You know, I I often say um, I'm contractually obligated to love people. <laughs> what am I think? What am I saying? As a Christian, I signed up. To love people right. as First Corinthians right. thirteen, I do not. I haven't found anywhere where it says I have to like them. So I love all people. I don't like everybody. Well, and that's and but you see, because the like, I think we've come to understand like when I like something, there's a, a real preference, right? Yeah. There's, like is like has a lot to do with preferences. You know, love. I mean, people will tell you you can't control who you love, right? I mean, like. People fall in love despite the fact that, you know, they never thought they could fall in love with that person. So I think like liking is preference, but love doesn't have to look that way. And I think when we can take our own cultural context out of it and see what God says about love, then, you know, it sort of shifts the perspective. I think it becomes easier to love your neighbor um, because you're not looking at it like, but I don't feel, you know, warm and fuzzy towards them. Yeah. Well, and then the other scripture, oh, you know what? We went on this rabbit hole, which was great. I have no regrets, but I was, <laughs> I'm like, it, it said about, um, uh, let me go back because now the word is escaping me, specifically assume authority over. And I'm here thinking, it, let's just say that that is, that is it, right? There yeah. is nowhere where it says that if the man, a man, men group in, in a local church say, yes, this woman can teach us or lead us. If everybody's, in, you know, if the man leadership in agreement, then what? Wouldn't that be okay? I've thought about right. that often too. Well, no, that's a great point. That's a great point. Because, because I'm like, well, if, if you as a congregation decide that women can lead and teach, you know, everybody in this congregation, then she's not just going up there and saying, I'm teaching you, you have to sit down, this is what you're going to do. Because when I read that, that's what I read. It's women that were probably being cantankerous. And thinking right. whatever, and they were just trying to take over and just be, you know, because we women, I, I know we can be a little, you know, whatever. So let's just, you know, we can be very Eve. Well, <laughs> I reality, think, you know, <laughs> I, I think that um, we have to also remember the context of an early church where people are still finding their way. I mean, Paul spends how much time being like, oh my gosh, you guys are not getting this. Like, what part of this? you know, gospel that Christ left us and this, you know, this salvation that he left us this way, what part are you not getting it? I mean, you read through Romans and it's so much of like, you guys, you know, then, Mm -hmm. so I just feel like in this, you have this early church where people are really still trying to find their way. And yeah, people are probably jostling for position, nothing new under the sun, right? Lots of jostling for position, lots of trying, you know, this is why we have People, you know, like Paul and, um, you know, other Peter, other people in the New Testament who are trying so hard to be like, hey, 
this is our foundation. Let's go back to what our foundation was. Let's go back to what, you know, the true message of what Christ is trying, you know, to share with us is instead of, you know, bringing in things from all over, because I think it was, you know, we're talking about a new faith. I think we take that for granted now. Mm -hmm. Um, So many, you know, thousands of years later, generations and generations later that, you know, we sort of have the luxury of being like, which translation are you reading from? Yeah. Um, you know, whereas That's true. these people are dealing with a completely different thing. So I still have to believe that some of that is like, yes, being like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I do remember hearing, so I don't want to be like, because I don't want someone to be like, that's not true. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like somewhere I read once or heard someone say that the, the women in the Corinthian example is that there was like a separate sect that was kind of trying to come in and, you know, there's division and stuff, which, again, I mean, not surprised. Not surprised. Hello. Humans. Not surprising at all. Uh-huh. I mean, my goodness, you know, everywhere you turn, there's a different, you know, denomination or a branch off of something. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many churches I've I've been in where people are like, we don't get along. We're starting a new church, you know, so mm-hmm. I, that's not like it wasn't any different back then. So I agree with you, though. I mean, I think if you ask under the, you know, in the context of like, well, yeah, but, you know, anybody teaching untruth should be not allowed to teach. Does that make sense? Like whether mm-hmm. male or female. But I agree if someone if you're being given authority to teach, if your congregation and the male leaders have decided you're good to go, then, you know, are we still fighting that? Like, yeah, well, and then here's a, this one is the context is a little bit more. In First Corinthians, Corinthians 14, 26 through the end here, let me see, 39, 40. Um, I mean, the title is Good Order and Worship. And if you start reading from the beginning, it talks about speaking in tongues. There has to be somebody to interpret mm. and then prophets. And then, you know, women should remain silent. What does that tell me? These people were a whole hot mess and they were going in there and acting fool. Right. And it's like, no, 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 let's bring this in, you know. And so, you know. I don't know that that was a women are subservient and they're less. And so you should just be quiet because you're just a woman. You know, these women in the Corinthian church, I think we're probably being just a little bit too zealous. Right. (laughs) And needed to bring it down a couple notches. Um, And, you know, and when when I read this in 36, or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? And I think... If, some, if I ask those questions to somebody, I'm going to tell you that I'm asking them because I am perceiving that they are being arrogant and thinking they're above something. So because those are bringing people down a notch or two kind of questions. Or did the right. word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? It's just like, well, what's going on here? You, you, I think yeah. it was more so of, a, of an imbalance of... Um, humility or, or value as people period and I think I'm reading this and to me it's backward the women thought they were the ones above and everybody else and then they were like you know and then you it says you who's the you here because that's the other thing with English you is plural and singular correct yeah <laughs> we don't have that problem in Spanish we know no, it's being spoken no in po- well yeah <laughs> that's absolutely true I mean in, in most in most languages where you have like verb conjugation, there's there's a way to tell which the you is. So yeah. um. because then it goes on to say, if anyone thinks they are a prophet, anyone. It's not if women, you right. know. So 
it could be just summarizing the previous three paragraphs of all the people that were in disorder, not just the women. And, right. uh, and, and I hate that we actually have to study the word in this way and nitpick. Um, but the English has done a disservice in many ways, but it's hard to translate from a, another language if you don't have the context too. So you have to make it relatable to the language you're translating into as well. Right. So I, you know, I get that um, because uh, I think of that scripture and I don't know, I know it's in the New Testament, you know, it brings up the fact that, you know, they were praising the Bereans for going back and reading the scriptures to make sure what, what they were being taught was true. Mm. So, you know, we, we have to have that and not be, you know, blinded and bamboozled and just believe whatever um, but I think we each are responsible for our own, you know, let's say work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We're, right. We're, we're responsible for ourselves. Um, and at the end, I don't think we're going to be like, well, my leader said whatever. It's like, well, if you could read, you needed to find that out for yourself. Which is well, so right. That's, that's yeah. the funny thing. That's the funny thing, you know, when she says in her letter, when Beth, mm-hmm. when Beth Moore says in her letter that, you know, she was, um, they were saying that she was, her studies were heretical, but no one would read them because, you know, well, I feel it's very difficult for me to say that I have to contradict you if I don't know what you're saying, you know? Yes. I, that, that, it's like almost nonsensical to me. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all, you know? So if you're not willing to go in and see, then I don't, you know, but, and I think that that's, listen, that's a rule straight down the line. You just, you know, yeah, your relationship is personal. Your faith is personal. And we don't get to, I think it's, it's very easy and this has happened in the past. And, and I'm not even saying that in this in a judgmental way, but I think it's a good reminder to say, wait a minute, let's make sure that, you know, we know what we believe in, why we believe it, not just because someone stood at a pulpit and said, that's, this is what we believe, you know? And I think that like, that's sort of how we grow as Christians, that it's not just on, um, you know, it's just not just on the leadership. I, I it's always makes me nervous and probably because I've had some, you know, very, um, I said, let's say not healthy uh, experiences in some churches that I gen- genuinely feel that it's both a disservice to both the congregation and the pastor to put that person in a sort of a up on a pedestal, both for us because that's not how we grow as Christians to only admire someone else and not spend that time ourselves in mm-hmm. in the word but I think also for them because that's obviously a lot of pressure and eventually I mean how many how many leaders have we seen fall you know because yes. so I just feel like it's a disservice to both sides so we we do absolutely need to take responsibility for you know our faith and and really get in there and figure out this is why we believe what we believe and you know so if your denomination has a specific set of beliefs, I think you should know why you believe them. Why do you do what you do on a Sunday? You know, what, what's in your theology? Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like even with God, because I think a lot of people think that like asking questions and having doubts about your faith um, are like, oh my gosh, that's like a big no-no. Or I, I will say it was at, at a time when I was growing up. And I, what I have found is that I I don't feel that way at all. I feel that God is absolutely bigger than any doubting question. Well, they must have not read Psalms. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I mean, David was so, I mean, to steal from the local, you know, newest word, so emo. I mean, the dude was just all over the place. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, save me. And then, oh, thank you so much. And (laughs) Right. (laughs) He always had some kind of emotional roller coaster going on. But I love that that example is in there 
that he he talked to him and told him, you know, save me for my enemies. What's going on? You know, everything. It was just like talking to a girlfriend kind of, you know, and that that example is there and how you can talk to God. I think it's fundamental. It has to be in there. If without this in, without looking at scripture this way and seeing the brokenness in all of these other people, I don't even know how we even thought we were going to make it. Does that make sense? Because if you only looked at these people as heroes who never did anything wrong, my goodness, what an impossible standard. But I think the beauty of, of the Bible is that we get a chance to see, like, look, there's this entire... Um, there's this entire group of people. None of them were good enough. Jesus is the only one who actually came in and like made it right. And their flaws and yet God's willingness to bring salvation is what makes it, you know, personally for me, my walk so much like deeper because I can see like, well, wait a minute, even in the darkest moments, like God is still faithful, you know? So it really stops being about me. And I think you have to see the humanness in, in, in the people in scripture, you know? Yes. I think that's what happens. People get disillusioned with people and leaders. And, and don't get me wrong. You know, it hurts. And it's, and it's disappointing when, you know, leaders fall into, you know, really into the clutches of sin. Because right. I'm trying to speak here not to say that some sins are above others or whatever. Um, but sometimes some do have the ramifications are bigger, higher. Oh um, yeah. Absolutely. At least within the human context, we're not even talking about within God and, and all that. Right. Um, but uh, I, I think what I, I find fascinating because she apologized for not speaking up earlier. And to be honest, I appreciate her, her humility, but if she would have spoken up like this years ago when she had no cred sort of, you know, I'm over here right. air quoting the words would have probably fallen on deaf ears, but you know, she's proven herself to be, I mean, she, she could have been a voice of disgruntled and man bashing or whatever. She chose to be quiet. Now, whether it was cowardice or whatever, I, I don't know. I, I admire her a lot. I, I've learned a lot from her. But I think that speaking of, you know, social movements right now, right. there is a huge women's social movement. And for such a time of the, as this, I yes. think this letter w will have far reaching um, benefits than if she would have tried to do it earlier. Um, Maybe well, and I think too, you know, when we were speaking earlier, you said you uh -huh. know, the, proof, the proof is in the pudding, right? The pudding, the pudding. yep. Mm -hmm. So th the truth is, the the proof of Beth Moore's, um, her taking on and and being a voice, even in this movement, began a long time ago because she was willing to stick her neck out on the line and still be a teacher in whatever capacity she was able to at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, so like yes. you do what you do when you can do it. And if you can do more than you push for more. Um, but I think, you know, there's still like, you know, the years and years of her showing up still count, even if she wasn't at the time able to use her voice. And I agree. Now she sort of has this sort of, I don't want to say like matriarchal, but sort of mm -hmm. you know, position. And so now she's able to use it. I don't think. You know, I would never want her to feel shame for not having said something earlier because I don't know if she could say something now because it took a lot of humility on her part for all these years. You read some of the earlier part of this letter and that's, I mean, it took a lot of biting your tongue and being discernment so nicely, you know, mm -hmm. but at least being a presence in, in that sphere so that today she can stand up and say what she said. So, yeah, I completely agree. You know, 
there's there's different moments but I think that it's everything she's done has been leading up to a point where she could make this letter you know where she could say what she said here yeah and I'm here thinking my gosh like I could talk to you for another three hours because we can but there's so much to speak about here (laughs) but we have to wrap here in a couple minutes but I'm here thinking so what would be the overall message that we want to send to our list to my list uh, our friends I don't even listeners I consider you know I don't know who's listening to this so I'm figure it's the people I know my friends but if Listen, if you are new and I, we have never met in person or aren't even friends on the internet, welcome. I consider you a friend already because <laughs> there's never a stranger in my uh, sphere of, of, of people I've, uh, um, I have any kind of relationship with, even if it's through this podcast. But regardless of whether you, I would say, this is me, and then you can chime in and, and say what you want to do, whether your congregation believes that women should lead or not whether women pastors are allowed to, you know, they're allowed to be pastors or whether they're allowed to just lead the women in the, whatever it is that your congregation and, you know, and, and the doctrine is humiliation and being a sexual object is not Christ-like and it's just sin. And it is not okay to put up with because you're supposed to be in submission or, um, even just humility and, and respect toward men does not mean that you are below them as a person. And it does not mean that you have to put up with being treated like you're less because of the blood of Christ paid for all equally that that carries more weight than whatever any other human says ever period. The end. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> because... because I think we can't, we really can't forget that when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, I mean, that extends to everybody. And that means if we are to behave in a Christ-like manner, then that means we can't humiliate anybody and, um, or to treat them as second class. I think also what ends up happening is that, we forget sometimes too that even in some of those commands, you know, I, I'm trying to remember where it is now, and I've forgotten that my mind has drawn a blank. But, you know, where it says like um, how women and men are supposed to love each other, but it says, you know, wives submit to your husbands. Yes. And it said the flip of that verse is that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, excuse me, Christ died for the church. Yes. I mean, there is a sacrificial element there and so i feel like in both cases there is a give and a take you know well before that scripture before that part it says submit to one another wives and husbands so it's equal you know there is a there's a mutual (laughs) there is a mutual respect that has to exist Mm -hmm. what i find too and i think this is really hard for me a lot of times and i think it's a very unhealthy attitude that we sort of have taught girls um, this could obviously be a whole nother thing. I mean, obviously. It's oh, like, yes. You'll, you'll be on you a couple of times because we're going to talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, you know, in her letter, uh-huh. when she says, I think I can speak for many of us when I say that we are neither interested in reducing or seducing our brothers. I feel like what ends up happening is that when men, when men do things bad, when men sin badly, it's like, well, they couldn't help it. Okay. Yeah. It's just, it is what it is. When women... Mm-hmm. On the, but the flip side of that is as though it is, um, for women, it was uh, intentional, done intentionally, and meant to bring others down. 
right? That's mm-hmm. where we sort of get this idea of the seductress. I mean, you know, I remember sort of being, it's like you're either in, you're either a prostitute or a virgin in the Bible, right? These are your two options as a woman. Yeah. You're, there's one extreme or the other. I don't, you know, I don't think we can do that anymore to. Well, we can't, you know, when Jesus was pulled in to, um, uh, to, uh, uh, what was it? What word do I want to use here? When he was pulled in to be trapped about the woman caught in adultery, right? Right. What happened? He just stood there and said, whomever's without sin, throw the first stone. They all left. I, that, he, he started setting the precedent Correct. for how women were to be treated, even in the ugliest of public shame sin. Right. He gets up and tells her what? Go and sin no more. Go go and sin no more that was the end of it he didn't sit there and say oh i'm so sorry yes that dude's wife is horrible or yes oh my gosh or what you know you may want to consider not be no there was no conversation but there was no humiliation correct she was still treated with respect even though she was caught in this sin and i think we we have this thing with sexual sins now i think they have probably a lot more far-reaching consequences than some of the other ones. Agreed, Not in yeah. a spiritual realm, but in a, in a personal, with people. You know how we affect people. But we have this thing that we just constantly want to tear people to shreds over these things. And we forget how Jesus handled it. He was direct. He wasn't right. mushy about it. He was, you need to repent. But he didn't use humiliating words. He didn't treat people subpar. He was just direct to the point, black and white. And then that was it, the end of it. He was harsher with the Pharisees and the religious people. (laughs) You know, he flipped some tables a couple times. Are you there? Oh, you you cut out. You're going to start again. What what did you say? I I, I mean, I have theories on that, but that's probably like a whole nother. Just because I feel like the conversation with the Pharisees is just based on this, like, here you are embedded into, you know, into scripture. You should see me coming. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, to me, I think the reason he gets frustrated, he's like, you've set up all this stuff. But so when I'm right in front of your face, you don't see me coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Jesus spent much of his ministry being like, yep, remember, I, if you're if you're an expert, then you should know. And so I think a lot of the times I feel like when you do see Jesus being angry is that he's angry with people thinking that they're going to do it on their own. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, haven't you yet understood and seen you can't do this without this sacrifice that I'm going to make? Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, but I don't think, I agree. I don't think he ever sought to humiliate, you know. Um, there are many people whom he helped who actually were in extremely humiliating situations and who he li- quite literally lifted out of that, right? Because if you think about that that time in history, you know, if you are, um, you know, a, a leper or a sick person, you know, I always think of the man who like couldn't, no one would ever put him in the water. Remember the, um, yeah, the, 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 the leper over at the pools at the pool. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, this is not, these are not happy, joyful existences, right? These are the overlooked people. And, and Jesus always had a way of lifting those people up, you know? And I think for me, like, even for women, like it's, to me, it's a huge deal that you have Jesus, ah. 
saying, you know, the whole Mary and Martha story, saying that Martha can, I mean, that Mary's going to sit and just listen. Like, I imagine culturally back then, he's not like, yeah, you're right, Mary, off to the kitchen with you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yep. he absolutely gave her a place to be in the conversation, to be, you know, to learn and to absorb all of that. And I think that that's a big, you know, I think that's a big deal. Yeah, I think if anybody, even and especially us women, if if we have any doubt as to our place with Jesus, we need to go and just study the interactions Jesus had with the women in the Bible. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think when if you can like realize how Jesus validated women in scripture, it's like, I mean, when I first started realizing that genuinely brought me to tears because it made me just so grateful like honestly Jesus probably did more for women's rights than we're willing to acknowledge which is what always makes it funny for me when people say that like you know that that the Christian faith is not you know pro-woman maybe the the way that we've um we've done it but Jesus himself I think was for women because I think Jesus was for everybody yeah, and uh, yeah, I don't think it was this preferential thing, whatever. It was just bringing the equality, just bringing exactly. things to balance, speaking of, right? Exactly. Um, so listen, we, we're going on long here. So you have to promise that we need to come back and we need to talk about tons of other things. I'm we I usually wrap up with two questions. Okay. Um, how are you being salt in your neck of the woods? Um, well, I, I mean, I do, I'm involved in a lot of... Um, I guess different min- ministry positions. What? Uh, <laughs> well, okay. So go the ahead, irony, of course, uh-huh. I am a children's ministry director at my church. So mm-hmm. I run Sunday school. I do always find it funny that, you know, that women get relegated to this role. I find uh, it, I find, no, I find it very ironic because to me, it's so funny that you would put, if, if you don't, I mean, I'm not saying my church is fairly supportive of um of this and I've never really felt like I don't have a voice but not in my particular church that I'm in right now um in the past I wouldn't say that that's the case but in this one I just think it's really funny though that sometimes we are like no 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 you go teach the kids but I mean the kids are the future right so if you're letting women lay the foundations of the faith for these children is that you know what I'm saying so that's I, a pretty powerful position to be in actually <laughs> I think it's yes, very powerful I get it. Um, yeah. we're so teaching I'm, your boys. Right? I mean, <laughs> ay, ay, ay. But, but I, you know, I'm sorry, so, that, that kind of sounded jabbish. It was, well, you know, I apologize. That, that did come out a bit, bit mean spirited. Anyway, move on. It can be hard. It can be hard when yeah. you have to navigate all that. But, um, so I feel like pouring into the lives of the next generation is a big deal. I have a really strong, um, it's just a strong feeling of like, I want the children in my Sunday school class to, um, to be able to always remember that, like, to associate their memories of being in Sunday school with feeling loved and feeling the love of God and feeling the love of their church. So that's a really important role for me. Uh, but I also um, work within, you know, some women's uh, ministry type things in my church. And you know, my big thing that I've realized is that I think it's really easy to get wrapped up in numbers and in big, big things. Mm-hmm. But the last couple of years, especially, I feel like God has very much put it on my heart to understand that, like, discipleship happens through fellowship. 
through like really one-on-one relationships, you know, yelling with the sign on the corner of a street at somebody, you know, to be saved is not, um, I feel as impactful mm-hmm. as, as building relationships with people and sharing, because I think out of that comes a real authenticity and an opportunity to sort of um, have really deep roots. And I think that we need a deeply rooted faith, you know, that, Amen, uh, yeah. that will get us through the tough times because, you know, and I think it's so difficult because I, I look, I live in a small town and so maybe it's easier. I, yeah, I've lived in really big cities in the past. And I think that we do feel fairly disconnected from people, but I think it's when, you know, like me too, isn't just, you know, I know right now that idea of me too is, is a bigger, is a bigger movement on its own, but you know, prior to that, being able to look at someone and go, oh my gosh, me too. I feel that way. Or I've had that experience or, you know, all that's like a really, really important part of, um, of being able to, to walk in faith when it doesn't feel good for you or when you're going through something really hard to have someone else be able to come alongside you and been like, I've been there or I get it. I love being able to have mentorship from older women who have, you know, walked all kinds of stuff that I haven't gotten to yet. And I love thinking that, you know, we can learn from each other. So that's, I mean, for me right now, I think that's a really important thing, this sort of concept of like building community and, and, um, and relationships and that kind of really authentic fellowship. So I don't know. I yeah, there that. is, it's there not is big power, and flashy, but it's really, yeah. it's really, um, it's just very close to my heart. So no, I, I don't necessarily believe in big and flashy. I mean, there's room for everybody at the table, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I was going to say time that and a place. there's a time and a place, yes. right? Well, exactly. And I was going to say, you know, this whole thing with the power of the me too, you know, as much as it's a movement and it's the thing now and, you know, next month it'll be something else. Um, the reality is that when you find people that have gone before you and um, maybe a little farther ahead, maybe still kind of struggling and, and trying to figure everything out, but it's not in the dark anymore. Yes. The enemy loses power over you Absolutely. and over us. And, you know, that's what commu- uh, Christianity should be about is community. And the, the more united we are, regardless of the, of the denomination, we can leave those doctrinal things, you know, to God. Yes. In a sense, like, okay, so you're going to believe what you're going to believe, then go ahead. But let's be united in these other many things. Um, because I think the footing I think we're losing, especially, you know, in American and Western culture, is because we are our own worst enemies. And we can attack each other and tear each other down like it's nobody's business. We, we, why do we need the outside world? Right. We're doing a fantastic job. No, it's true. <laughs> it. Well, and you know, so, so someone mm-hmm. that I admire very much, and she's she's definitely a mentor of mine. Um, is there's a lady in in my church, and she mm-hmm. has often said, you know, one of the things she loves about um, our specific um, faith uh, tradition denomination yeah. is that um, the the notion of unity, not uniformity. So we may not all look the same. There not may not con- be a constant uniformity but there's a unity there now i feel like we are united on the fundamentals of who god is who christ is you know who the holy mm-hmm. spirit is. So there's some there are some fundamentals but there's a lot that we bicker and fight about in the church that is <laughs> like less, yeah you know about that and yeah. i think that we need to give ourselves room to say look yeah i don't know i don't know if we're on the same page but if we're if we either go into hiding because there's shame or we go into like just defense fighting mode and then we're constantly dividing and splitting, 
you know, it's just, yeah. I mean, it makes us ineffective. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and then the next question is, if you were a spice and, you know, I'm not legalistic. So if it's an herb or something else or a spice <laughs> blend, listen, anything you cook with. You're so funny. <laughs> Which one it's would it like be? It's like, you know what I'm going to say. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Which one would it be? And how do you bring your special flavor to the table? Okay. So I did think about this one because mm-hmm. that's tricky. It's so, it, I thought it was going to be tricky, but so... Do you know what Herbe de Provence is? What? Herbe de Provence. It's like a So is that a provincial herb? Well, it's I, <laughs> Is that no, French? No. Okay. What's Provence? Provence <laughs> it is from but I would I would Okay, so Herbe Hold de on, hold on. There's some reggaeton driving by. <laughs> <laughs> it's really loud. A Not one soundtrack. <laughs> yes, I apologize. Okay, I think they're, whoa, that's really loud. I'm on a third floor, and it's like they're right outside the That's funny. Balcony. They're bringing the party to you, the Yes. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. So Herbe de Provence is a blend of herbs. So okay. typically speaking, you'll find, like my, the one that I prefer, I would compare it to when you have a seasoning, like a seasoning blend. You know, like when you say, like, you like curry, and then mm-hmm. but every family has, like, a different curry recipe, like a, okay. from a culture where they yeah. use curry. So the, the one that I love is it's a blend of rosemary, thyme, basil, marjoram, and savory, which I think is like a sage sometimes or comparable to sage. Okay. Um, but it's literally, I use it, I use it all the time in like all my cooking, but it's a very comforting blend to me. Um, and what I love about it is that I think that it's this really beautiful, aromatic, but complimentary blend of flavors. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that I feel like that would be if I had to name myself something was because, you know, I come from a lot of different like my background is very diverse. And, you know, it's sort of the asking me what what spice I think I am is like asking me where I'm from. Um, right. I, I always feel like I mean, oh, well, hold on. How much time do you have? Uh, because I'm from. I, and I joke, uh-huh. sometimes I joke. I say, well, I mean, I'm I'm from everywhere, but of nowhere because I just am you know, I don't know, like a gypsy, not really, but yeah, you know, I, my story goes for, I'm, I'm, and I feel like I've collected these really great flavors from everywhere that I've lived and all the cultures that affect me and that, you know, that they've shaped who I am. Um, but ultimately what I love about Herbe de Provence is I feel like those flavors complement one another. They, they're not, you know, they don't fight each other. Mm-hmm. They complement each other. And I think that they bring warmth and comfort to a dish. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that's, you know, ultimately that's kind of my goal. I want, I want to be able to bring people um, to a place where they're comfortable. Um, I like the idea of saying, well, how can our differences be complementary instead of, you know, divisive. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I'm like, a, I like to be a cozy person. And I think I, um, for me, it's always about creating a place where people can feel safe to come and talk and, and have dialogue and discourse. And that's, um, I, I think it's just part of who I am. I think it's, I think it's one of the gifts that, um, that I have to be able to sort of hopefully like engage people in, in that kind of way. So. Well, I know you, you're that to me for sure. Cause I love having conversations with you. It is like, sitting with a warm cup of tea <laughs> and, um, and yeah, relaxing. So I, I agree with your assessment of yourself. <laughs> That's at least how I experience you. Okay. So you're right on. <laughs> I want to know though, what the word Provence, is it provincial? Like 
province. That's what I, I think, think of. What does it, it mean? Refers, it, I think refers to that region in France. Oh, okay. So it does. All right. Because, you yeah. know, I like to know where the roots of, of right. things come from. And it may I'm not, not always. France mean. at all, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I love, I just, I, you know, the French don't really like us apparently, but I love, uh, what I love about French cooking is they use butter. And, you know, butter is one of my food groups. That is like- <laughs> Staple, absolutely, sister. Amen. So, so the French are good in my book, right? <laughs> if you have butter, you're good to go. Butter, you're good. Bacon. Yeah, we're yeah. good. Let's go. Yes. Oh my gosh, Magda. Thank you so much. I remember when I actually thought you were Hispanic. A lot of people, Magdalena. Yeah. People do in the United States. You're I like, got. no, I'm Polish. I'm like, oh, that explains it because I've the whole Romanian thing and all that. So. You're so funny. Yeah. Anyway, um, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for no, coming in you. and on. I mean, and uh, chatting with me. And we'll have to pick up some other topic and talk about stuff because, I mean, we can talk about it all. We've got yeah. I don't. I don't think we have a shortage of uh, rabbit rabbit trails to go down. <laughs> no, we don't. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of even this topic. So I can, we well, can do it's a, a big part one. Two. I mean, it's yes. a big one. Yeah, we so. have to you know break that down and and whatnot. So. But, well, thank uh, you so much for having yes, me. Yes, yes, and I hope uh, our listeners have a lot to think about and, and pray about and, and see where they stand. Absolutely. Take care, honey. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. I wanted to talk with her for about two more hours, so I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, the last thing I thought is that I was going to be talking about Hitler. Um, loved uh, that she put so much thought into what kind of spice she would be and you know although she was a mixture of herbs we know we don't do legalism around here uh that is who she is she is definitely a mixture and she's warm and wonderful i hope that you have uh at least one friend in your life uh, in which you can talk about so many diverse topics and just feel a tad bit smarter after you leave the conversation Until next time.